Hello and welcome to the Swine Disease Reporting System. This is the report number 66. We're going to cover the findings from the previous month, the month of July. Uh, my name is Edison Magalhães, EFTS-DRS Studio. Hi, my name is Guilherme, also at SDRS Studio. Hello, Daniel Linhares, also at the SDRS. And today we're going to cover the findings from the SDRS, as I mentioned from previous month, the month of July 2023. And also we have the pleasure to having here today Dr. Thomas Petznik joining the SDRS podcast. Dr. Petznik is currently a veterinarian at the ArtCare, and he got his DVM from Kansas State University and is currently pursuing his master's degree in veterinary preventive medicine at Iowa State University. Uh, Dr. Petznik has a vast experience in swine production systems uh, in the Midwest, and he is the winner of the 2023 on the Lehman Swine in Praxis Award due to his contributions to understanding the epidemiology of sapovirus, uh, which is one of our podcast subjects for this month. Dr. Petznik, welcome to the SDRS podcast. Yes, thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you guys. Uh, you know, I always uh, appreciate the the interaction that we have, uh, whether it's at the VDPAM or or online like this. Uh, it's been a great group to join. I also want to give a special thanks to the Layman Conference Committee and their selection of me. Uh, it really means a lot. I mean, there's so much good science that's happening truly in practice out there, and to be selected out of that group of wonderful people. Uh, really means a lot. I'm humbled. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. It's a big deal. It's a big award. And uh, so we're happy to have you here. Before we jump into the discussion, uh, Guilherme, can you uh, bring the updates that's in the SDRS report this month? Yes, Daniel, sure. Let's start with the PERS virus. That is uh, our first pathogen that we have in the first page of the report, that we are, have some decreased activity of PERS that is going on like in July, that is expected for the summer, but is really below the expected even the summer period. So something that's going on, there's a good news that we are having the decreased activity of PERS. And, but on the other side, we have some regional increased activity in some specific states, for example, Ohio and Illinois that are having the percentage of positive emissions above the expected. And then mainly the main variants that are coming from these two states from the Ohio, the L1C variant that we are having more detection according to our sequencing database. And from Illinois, the L1A174. And just to highlight a little bit about the sequencing part, from the top eight sequences that we have uh, overall in 2023, three of them belongs of the, the lineage 1C variant with three different RFLP, the 144 more classic that we find on the field, but also the 134 and the 143. And just to give to our audience what we have in the bonus page today uh, in the report, you know, we developed some education material for the SDRS. So if you have some questions about the charts, for example, you can go directly to the YouTube channel that we have right now with all this education material explaining how to interpret the chart and how to understand what's going on in terms of disease activity according to the SDRS. Awesome. And in the report, there will be links for each of those uh, videos, right? So in the summary for PERS activity, then it's it's uh, within or below expected with some exceptions, as, as mentioned. And one of them, uh, Dr. Petznik, has been in Nebraska for, for, since to, uh, uh, 2021. Uh, before then, the positivity would be for PCR cases was always below 30%. And since uh, 
2010, right to uh, beginning of 2021, we've seen a detection of a, an increase of detection of this virus by PCR. And we know that Nebraska is kind of your area, right? Can you help us understand what's going on in there? Yeah, I don't think anybody always knows the full answer, but I think there's some things if we think about them uh, that have definitely impacted us. So I'll give you a little history is that uh, if you go prior to 2020, uh, and, and I think we're getting a little bit of a shadow when you say 2021, we're getting a shadow effect of, of what started in 2020. But prior to that, um, really what we would see is that we would, I, I would agree that 30%, you know, which was very common. But if you really take that and you break it apart into, into subsets, we had a, a, a top tier of really well-located, uh, high, high biosecurity practices being implemented at certain farms. And those farms would stay traditionally naive or, or once they do break, going negative for long periods of time. And then there was a second tier uh, that, that really was probably that the ones that contributed mostly to that 30% prevalence. Uh, or reporting that was going on. And those farms, even though uh, they would break with PERS, it might be, it was very uncommon to break a farm unless it was just in a really poor location or uh, or in, in a situation of where the biosecurity was just not being uh, administered quite as well, is it was very rare for farms to break rapidly again and again. Uh, we would have it, but it would usually be like every three to four years. And, and so those, we were very successful. We would eradicate and we would move on there'd be a small subset that would say, hey, let's just stay positive and, and, and put in positive guilts. But then what really started the first signal uh, was back in the, the middle, maybe the, the spring, summer, fall of 2020. And there were some reports coming out that some high biosecurity, well-located farms had started breaking with PERS. And then really where my world changed, and I think it really took off was in November of 2020, where I had a, a, a rapid movement of farms that were running negative, all of a sudden break, especially within certain regions. And it, it almost like swept across the state, especially the bottom part of the state where a lot of it had been pretty quiet for a lot of years. We would have per, but then we would get rid of it. And then that actually continued on into 2021. So uh, then, then what's interesting is that we continue to have the issue that seemed like we, we kind of had that wave. And then actually 2022 wasn't that great of a year either in that we either had farms that still were extended enclosures and are having to restart because of the extended time periods it took to get rid of PERS. And then we also had some other high biosecurity, well-located farms that continued to break. And then we actually had farms that broke, that had cleaned up and maybe even depopulated that it broke with a new virus. So it's been a really, really frustrating time during this period of time. So you ask, well, why is that? And certainly we can't underestimate the, what has happened with the, with the viral strains. We know that they exist longer in the environment with great work being done uh, to show that. We know that the viral replication of, of them is really just kind of off the charts. There's really strong CTs, meaning lots of virus into the environment. Um, and then also just it, it appears like we're seeing some rapid mutation that happens and so whatever's going on and i know there's lots of different work being done on that uh all over is is that that hasn't helped our situation the other thing is that if you look at the landscape of what's going on in nebraska today versus say 15 20 years ago a lot of the players in the in the game are really different and they're multiple so we used to have uh, a setting where there was a fixed set 
for the most part of Nebraska producers. If Nebraska farms got purchased or traded hands, it usually happened within Nebraska. Now we have a lot more players in the field coming into Nebraska over the last, especially 10 to 15 years, uh, more pigs incoming than we ever did as well. And so really, if I, you know, I think probably the, the biggest way is, is that if you look back at like PADRAP and all those types of things before the biosecurity uh, uh, outbreak investigations have really come along. We used to rate those farms. And I think the, really probably the best way to describe it is connectedness has increased. And so with that connectedness, we also have some risk that comes in. Well, uh, and uh, thanks for sharing that. And if we take this kind of case study from Nebraska, what what lessons do you think we learned there that we can bring to the rest of the industry to help mitigate some of, some of that uh, purse impact? Yeah, so one producer put it to me, Daniel, that it just feels like in Nebraska, we've reached a, a tipping point where we, because of maybe the viral changes that I described, because of the connectedness, because of more people that are trafficking in and out of Nebraska with transport vehicles, et cetera, uh, is that it just feels like now we're maybe going to have to look at interventions that high, high density areas uh, that have had multiple outbreaks say Iowa, Minnesota, North Carolina, those, we might have to start looking at those. So we haven't taken any of my farms to filtration, but we've certainly considered that. Uh, but I think really the first steps are this, is we have to continue to push biosecurity investigations. So I've been in the midst of it where it's like, holy cow, I've got all the, I got this farm that broke, or maybe I got two farms, maybe I got three farms that just broke with in rapid succession. And we get really enveloped in just taking care of the farm. And, and so at times we're just not getting that thorough biosecurity investigation because it becomes down to a matter of time. So, so we have to make sure that, that we have to understand if we want to get better, we have to be able to figure out, number one, how did that virus even get in the vicinity? If everybody around me was negative and as far as that we know, and that becomes more of a surveillance question, but how did that virus even get in the vicinity? And then step two is how did that virus get from the vicinity now that it's here actually into my farm in a high enough amount that can actually infect a pig? And so I, I really think that that's a big piece of it. Uh, I described a little bit with surveillance that we just have to get better. All the data would show out there that I've seen is that we tend to see signals more in the wean to finish front prior to the fact that we start to see it in the south farms. And so we know they're higher risk from the standpoint point of all the all the transport that comes in and out of those and so i think if we really look at at that uh and we start to understand really where is this coming from uh we can then we we've got very good producers that can respond to that challenge and say okay here's what i'm going to change but don't ask me to go jump straight into filtration uh before that becomes an incident that's a good point and and there is a lot of tools today right if you think about the chic funded rapid response uh, instrument, right? That Dr. Holtkamp's uh, work with works with, and the surveillance mechanisms that you you mentioned with all the sequencing and everything. There has never been as many uh, important and powerful and sensitive tools to help understand where the virus came from. And once you you know that, well, now you're better prepared to keep talking about biosecurity and prevention and everything else, right? Right, right. Yeah, and we just have to continue to communicate and communicate at a high but effective level. Mm -hmm. Well, very good.
So let's move to, to the next page of the report. So we're going to cover now the enteric coronavirus. Guilherme, can you give us a background of what happened last month for enteric coronavirus? Yeah, for enteric coronavirus, we also have good news that the percentage of positive emissions are stabilizing and even have a trend to decrease. And also is expected for the summer, right, for these viruses. But also some regional level, we have some increased activity. For example, for the Delta coronavirus, we are having more positive submissions coming from the Kansas state. And from PED, for example, more states are having like uh, increased percentage of positive submissions above the expected. That is Missouri, Indiana, and also North Carolina. So Dr. Petsnik, back on, on what Guilherme just mentioned about the entire coronavirus. So this year we are having this increased activity of Delta coronavirus. Uh, that was concentrated mainly uh, at the beginning of the year. But when we analyze the historical data, we realize that this increased detection happened in a two, three years pace cycle. So what are your thoughts on why this increased activity might be occurring? And what can we do to, to break this cycle, right? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and I've been I've been given that question before. And it, again, it's not one of those simple matters, but I'll put my speculation into it is when you really look at that, even even we don't even really talk about TGE hardly anymore. It's just very, very sporadic. And that for a lot of different reasons with PDRC or uh, Portsline Respiratory uh, Coronavirus. Uh, so, but, but what I really wonder is to me, a Delta coronavirus break is a lot different uh, than, a, than a real PED break. So um, when PED hits, it's obviously a, a really high mortality. And I'm not saying a Delta coronavirus doesn't cause us some issues, but it also seems like it resolves, at least in my hands, a lot faster. And what I really wonder is, it, it, it really strikes me as I still think when we have a TGE pop up, and it very well may uh, rank right in there with, with Delta coronaviruses, we have to think about endemic herds. And granted, the, the standard producer that, that you guys and I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis may not have those endemic herds. We would know that because we're doing some surveillance, we're checking for problems, et cetera. But I really wonder if there's some smaller units out there, you know, could be anything, you know, not throwing anybody under the bus, but just smaller smaller uh, places that that maybe it even just be, or sometimes in, in the pro, uh, we're in the process of, of raising pigs and sometimes we're not but we could have these endemic herds and maybe there's some feral pig populations that could account for that too, that those just continue to exist. And then it, it finally takes the wrong thing at the, at the wrong time happening. And then that gets our, our gets it out into the population and into uh, let's say either into transport or into feed and because of the marketplace. And so once you then do that, then that releases and becomes a problem for everybody, no matter what your biosecurity is. So I really think that if we really dialed in on that, there has to be something for it to kind of pop up periodically, epidemiologically, that there's probably some endemic herds that sometimes get out in the population and sometimes don't. Oh, that's a great point. So Guilherme, let's move to the to the next page, also the report, which covers mycoplasma and PCV2 uh, detection. What are the highlights from this month? Yeah, let's start with PCV2, that we are having a decreased number of submissions and also a lower percentage of post-submission. Uh, and if you remember from the beginning of the year, we had more submissions for PCV2 and also an increased activity, but it seems that now it's going down. And But for the mycoplasma, we have a stable percentage of post-submissions during all the year. But what's going on is that since the first month in January, we are having an increased number of submissions of mycoplasma. 
And when we look to the historical, there is even the double of the number of submissions that we used to receive like per month. And this is due to more the increased usage of deep tracheal swabs when we broke down the database by specimens that were submitted, uh, that were tested. And when you look that, that the number of deep tracheal swabs is just increasing uh, the number of submissions with this specific sample type. That brings a question for, for you, uh, Dr. Petznik. How, what, what, what is going on with that uh, atypical increased submissions of for mycoplasma hyaluronemia testing? Is it due to elimination? Is mo monitoring associated with controlling and elimination practices? Where, where do you see the industry going forward in terms of mycohyaluronemia control and elimination? Yeah, that, that, that is one that I think you've already answered that question. And especially where, where the where the submission form is, especially on the deep tracheal side, that's a very common practice for these eradications that are taking place. I've been really blessed in in my corner of Nebraska, uh, where where the vast majority of my producers were stocked mycoplasma hyaluronemia naive, and they've stayed mycoplasma hyaluronemia naive. So we still do some vaccination uh, in that regard, just in case. But in that. So I haven't been involved in hardly any mycoplasma eradications, but I do know, and I talked to a lot of my colleagues as we collaborate, is that that is something that's very highly on the radar. You know, Dr. Yeski up in Minnesota has really pushed that from the start. And now that it's become much more achievable on a, on a high percentage basis uh, with a lot of discipline, now it's really not a question of whether you can take an, a, a herd negative or not, but they're now looking at the ways that they do and trying to reduce the cost and reduce the time of closure more than anything else. So I would expect 100% that I, I have not heard of any just massive mycoplasma outbreaks or anything like that that people are trying to figure out. I'm sure they're out there at times, but at the same time, I really think the focus has been on let's really eradicate this virus or this bacteria. That's great, Dr. Pesnik. Uh, just move to our last question. That is the purpose of our, your award. That it was the SAPO virus investigation. And that was a partnership between like academia and also the industry that you could quickly like identify this, this, this bug and also develop as a solution for the production system that you were dealing with. So could you share with our audience your experience with this specific case? Yeah, so, you know, we just talked a little bit about the, the need that we need for more biosecurity investigation. And, and I was actually in a setting where it wasn't necessarily a biosecurity investigation. It was more just a disease investigation. We have to continue that too. The, the old lesson being is that uh, just because it looks like something that you're used to and then you found it multiple times on a farm doesn't mean that that's what it is still. And so this was a farm where we'd had a long-standing fight with things with a with a mid to late lactation diarrhea, not one that caused a lot of mortality unless it was a, a factor of the morbidity in that those piglets didn't make an achievable wean weight. And, and so I was really challenged by the producer. Uh, he was really key in it is that, hey, we've got to figure this out yeah. because it's costing us. You know, our pigs are about one to two pounds lighter than what they should be at that time. We're otherwise healthy. We don't have PERS. We're triple negative. I mean, just all the lists, we just have to beat this diarrhea. And so really, I, I've over the years just relied as being a, a private practitioner on a lot of people to help me get better. 
And that might be my fellow practitioners in the field. That might be uh, groups like uh, at the VDPAM. That's certainly the diagnosticians. And then actually my industry partners as well to help find solutions. Sometimes we're looking at, hey, that allowing them to support their product, but sometimes we need them to help with finding new solutions or diagnosing a problem. And so really that was the, the crux of it is that we, we started down the diagnostic path, uh, you know, and collaborated with actually uh, at, the, at the university there at Iowa State and, and just really started dialing in and saying, holy cow, this isn't any of the normal players. And yet we still have this diarrhea. And so we took it the next level. And thank goodness that we now have next generation sequencing. Uh, we, I don't think we would have ever figured this out, at least not at this point in time, uh, just relying on the old standard of let's do electron microscopy. So, so eventually we got there uh, and we found out that the SAPO virus was, was, a, was, a, was present, especially really high numbers in this case. What was really, really beneficial of this case is that all the other things, rotavirus, bacteria, anything else that would cause an enteric problem in those pigs that we know of, coccidiosis, all those were negative. So now it was a lot easier if we just found SAPO in a mixed infection, we could have easily written it off. It had actually been reported that way as, as hey, in, in, in the review of diagnostic cases years ago, they found SAPO virus in several of those, but it never had been pinned down as the sole cause of a diarrhea. So, so that was really beneficial for us. And then really the next step was convincing industry we need a solution for this because we went to sanitation, we went to uh, feedback to, to for piglet diarrhea, and none of those were giving us the response that we wanted. And so I really had to go to industry and and look for that solution. And so a part of that process is, you can imagine, is convincing, number one, it took convincing uh, the diagnostic lab that, hey, yeah, this is something really real. Uh, then secondly, we had to grow and find out, is this the only farm it's at? And what we quickly found is that we were finding this in a lot of different places even as a sole uh, and, and, in mixed, and in mixed infections. So that then was enough to, to spur industry. Uh, in that case, it was Merck Animal Health with their Sequivity line. And they really helped us out with coming up with a solution. And we were really fortunate that the solution worked and worked really well. And then what really kind of feeds the whole thing besides is always the cost that's involved. And, and Schick came in and just did a tremendous job of supporting us through that. And I, th I would have to say top to bottom that this just becomes a great success. Every day, especially you know, now, uh, we've, I've been, I probably talked formally in, in an academic setting at least three times within the last 18 months and going to be doing that again at AASV to continue to talk about it. And so more and more people are finding this and they're finding it important enough that, that that people are looking for that solution. So it's really exciting how it all falls together, uh, that all parties are necessary to make that work. It's an incredible success story of a teamwork, right? You, you coordinated, yeah. orchestrated everything, but it's fun to see how you put everything together, right? From, from academia to the lab, to, to your experience and the producer and the, and the industry and funding, right? So, uh, every, everything, kind of came together for a happy ending, like you described. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, if you miss one piece of that anywhere along the way, we still might not know what's going on. Mm. And that was it for this month, guys. Uh, I hope to see you guys next month and help me. Uh, thanks, Dr. Petsnik here. See you guys next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.